I know that every time I tell my story, God is being glorified. But if I am honest with you, there are many occasions when I feel I don't really want to tell my story. Because I believe every testimony, every single person that comes to faith in Christ, their story is amazing. Because in each one, God reaches out to a spiritually dead person, regenerates their heart, changes their heart of a stone, and puts a heart of flesh there. So I personally, every time someone comes and tells me, Fashid, you have such an amazing story, I tell them, I am sure yours is the same. Welcome to this episode of On The Move, a podcast recording presented by 21C International. I'm your host, Leanne White, and I am very excited today to be joined by a new friend that I have been introduced to by a ministry in Pittsburgh called PRISM. And Farshid, I'm so excited to welcome you today to the podcast. Um, hi, thanks for having me. I just want to start today by um, hearing just a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Um, so I'm originally from Iran, and uh, I was born in Tehran, the capital. And you lived there until how old were you when you when you would have moved? Um, until I was 28. And so somewhere along the way in Iran, I believe I've I've learned that that you had um, something pretty remarkable happen to you. So I would love if you could just share with us as you were growing up in Iran, did you know about God? Did you had you heard about God? Had you had any exposure to the God that we know from the Bible? I would say um, not really. Um, the way that I was uh, being taught from the early childhood was Islam itself. And so there are some similarities that we may have about like attributes of God, like God being all powerful, eternal, and uh, things like that. Um, so yes, in Islam, you, you have those notions. But things like God being relational, God being like our father, um, those things were not there in Islam. Were you curious about the God that you now know, or were you content to follow the God that you knew through Islam? In Iran, uh, most of the Muslims in Iran are from the Shiite. Uh, Islam has these two major, you can kind of say, uh, denominations. Most of the Muslims around the world, they are Sunnis. But uh, Iran is one of those countries where we have more Shiite Muslims. So the Shiite Muslim, the big difference is about who was the successor of Muhammad. Uh, Shiite Muslim would say that Muhammad clearly uh, said that his cousin Ali was going to be his successor, but uh, Sunni Muslims don't believe in that. So with the Shiite version of Islam, they believe that after Muhammad, there were these 12 Imams that were in charge of governing the, the country, that's like, the, like government, something like that. So um, they have uh, Muhammad's cousin as the first Imam, then after him, there are two of his sons, which would be Muhammad's um, grandchildren. And then it would be father, son, father, son, until 12. In Iran, I was doing really well as far as Islam was considered. I remember even when I was in um, uh, elementary school, I think I was maybe about six or seven years old. My parents actually signed me up uh, for um, extracurricular um, Islamic courses, like how to recite Quran in a particular way. And I did so well, I actually ended up going for competition at the like 
as something like a province level. Um, so in that sense, that, that was my engagement. And I didn't really know much about um, Christianity and Bible, except what my teachers were telling me. Uh, Jesus is only a man, not God. He was only a prophet. He never died on the cross. And the Bible has been corrupted. Now, from the Shiite standpoint, a lot of Shiite Muslims would especially interested in and uh, thinking more about the third Imam. Uh, his name was Hussein. He was Muhammad's grandson. And so what happened was um, this Imam and his uh, followers, they engaged in a war which lasted 10 days. Uh, Muslims believe that in that war, the army of the Imam was about 72 people, but the enemy had thousands. And this war lasted for 10 days. And at the end of that, all people on the Imam side were killed and the Imam himself was beheaded. So every year around the same time, like an anniversary, Shiite Muslims were black. They go down to the streets at night and they have these huge chains that they use to hit themselves back on, on behind their shoulder to show sorrow, to show that they are mourning the death of that Imam. This is something that men do and boys. So at night, they would wear the black, they come down to the street and they um, hit themselves with those chains. That was something that I started doing when I was five or six years old, like all other boys um, around my age. And I remember on those processions, I used to hit myself so hard that when I got home, it was bruised behind my back. And those were some of the happiest nights of my life. I said, God is happy with me because I have suffered for the sake of that Imam. So that, that was my um, engagement with Islam. And that, that's, those are some of the areas that I was um, actually practicing Islam. And the, uh, the only thing our television showed about Christianity was uh, near Christmas, they would show this cartoon, um, which is based on Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. It was only a 10 minute uh, version of that. They wouldn't even show the whole thing. And after those 10 minutes, they would say, uh, Merry Christmas to Christians living in Iran. That was that. Nothing else on TV or radio about, about Christianity. And uh, so th that was that was the only thing um, I knew about Christianity. And one little bit that I want like to add is that in Iran we have people who, by constitution, they are allowed to practice their faith as Christians. Majority of them are people who have migrated from Armenia, and we have also a group of Assyrians. And these groups, they have their church, they can go to church, worship, but of course they are not allowed to share the gospel with the rest of the population. Thank you for that. That's so interesting. And and I'm just struck by the fact that you were so engaged uh, as a young child uh, with your faith. So something shifted, something happened. You had an experience that caused you to start thinking um, differently about God. So can you talk to us about what happened, what that was? So I was in high school and my mom and I, we always love reading and reading magazines, books, newspapers. So 
one of the most popular newspapers in Iran. This was one of uh, those newspapers that I, my mother would usually buy, and we would end up reading it. So when I'm in high school, near Christmas, half a page of that popular newspaper, surprisingly, they had up to this day, I don't know why, they published Sermon on the Mount. And for me, um, as long as, as far as I know, it has never happened before or after that. Um, I have no idea what, what went on through the minds of those people. But yes, they published Sermon on the Mount. And I remember the introduction section was something like this. As we are approaching the birthday of the prophet Jesus, we decided to publish what is known as one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And so this is from Matthew and Luke. Now, I read that, and that was my first passage in the Bible that I ever read in my life. And it had a huge impact on me. I read it multiple times. I read it for my mom. I read it for some of my friends. And I actually cut that part of the, that half a page of the newspaper. And that was my Bible for so many years. Now, at that time, if you had asked me, Farshid, what do you find like special about this passage, about this, the Sermon on the Mount? At that time, I wouldn't have been able to tell you the answer. I would just tell you this is different. But now, in hindsight, I, I think that there were three things that affected me. One was when Jesus talks about um, the Ten Commandments and then gives us more explanation about that, showing that um, it is not just merely the physical act that is important. So, for example, when Jesus says, you know, it was written, you shall not commit adultery. I tell you, you lost as after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart or murder anger. So Jesus is saying it's not just a physical act of, like, say, adultery. It's the thoughts that you have, whatever is in your heart and mind, those are important as well. Now, if you look at the Muslim world, almost everything they do is external. So there is, there is, it is visible, like praying, fasting, and things like that. Second one was the issue of hypocrisy. Uh, when Muslims want to pray, part of that they put their forehead on the ground, and for that, it's something like an Islamic round made of different material that they put their forehead on. I remember that in Iran, there were people who would press their head, their forehead against that round thing so that it would leave a mark. So next morning, when they went to work, people would say, wow, this man is such a holy man. He has prayed for so long, it left a mark around his forehead. And when you, when you read Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like directly addressing that, saying, if you want to pray, don't pray out where everyone sees you. Go in the privacy of your home and even say, like, um, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. When you do those, those things, don't be, don't be just concerned about what people can see. So that was number two. And the third one that I would think is the most important one is that as a Muslim, I knew there was a list of things to do and a list of things not to do. So I was taught that if you teach all those boxes and God shows you mercy, you go to heaven. I don't think any human being can read Sermon on the Mount and say, yes, I can do that. That's impossible. So those three things affected me a lot. I did not become a Christian but I kind of stopped being a Muslim.
And as I said, that half a page of the newspaper was the only Bible that I had for so many years. So what happened after that was that I got to know more and more about Christianity because of my field of study. Um, I did both my bachelor's and master's in English literature. So before I even had the physical Bible, I read a lot of poems, novels, plays that had allusions to the Bible. So I still got more and more info um, about Christianity. And uh, I remember my lecturers told me, I mean, told all the students, if you want to study English literature, you should know two, two things really well. One is Greek mythology. Second one is the Bible. So what happened was I had a lecturer who had a U.S. green card and uh, she would have spent six months in Iran and six months in U.S. So before she was leaving Iran, I told her, could you kindly buy me a Bible? And she did. And that was how I, I got hold of my first Bible. Now, when I was doing my master's, um, there was this um, article that was given to us on John Milton's Paradise Lost. There was one paragraph in that article that says something like this. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve rejected God. They disobeyed God. If God is to be just, humanity should be punished. If God is to be merciful, humanity should not be punished. The only way for God to be just and merciful at the same time is that he pays the price himself in his son. Now, that was like the last thing I needed. It just made sense to me. And I realized um, I didn't need to bruise myself to please God. God is pleased with me because Jesus was bruised for my transgression. And that completely affected my mind. The procession that I mentioned to you, I was going to as a child. By that time, I could not even tolerate looking at people doing that. I would take a different path not, not to see that. So what happened was I went to my mom and I told my mom, mom, I want to buy a cross and put it around my neck. My mom said, don't, don't even think about it because your dad is going to be very angry. I eventually convinced her, so I bought a cross and put it around my neck. But when my dad was leaving home to go to work, I would bring it out of my shirt. When he came back home, I put it inside. And I did the same thing with like friends and family members and all that. And then um, there, were, there were some things that made being a Christian difficult for me in Iran. And I had to hide my faith basically. Um, so when I was a student in university, um, out of, we had, we had to take 140 credit hours for undergraduate for the bachelor's level. Out of that, about 30 of that were, um, about Islamic teaching. So imagine I had to uh, sit in a classroom where a Muslim clergyman come in on many occasions misrepresenting Christianity. Not only I had to listen to him, I had to write those things on the exam paper to pass. When I ended up uh, working, um, I was working as a university lecturer for about five years. And um, that became uh, more difficult. I, I can give you just one example. In one of the universities I was working at, there was a corridor. And lecturers had offices alongside this corridor. So every day around lunchtime, 
people would lock their door and they would go down to this, go down to the ground level. There was something like a mosque so that they could pray. And I didn't want to do that. So I stayed in my room. I locked the door from the inside. So people would think that I am praying inside my office. I had to do that five days a week for months. I remember one of my colleagues, um, he was from Pakistan. And one day he came to my office and he said, Farshi, um, if you don't want to pray, take a prayer mat and put it in the drawer of your table. Because the people who come after your working hour, they come to your room to clean it up. They will check those drawers. If there is no prayer mat, you'll be in trouble. And I told him, I'm not going to do that. This is not something I believe in, so I, I'm, I'm not really going to do that. So I went to one of my lectures who was actually from Armenia. I told her, I want to become a Christian. What should I do? She said, Farshid, you have the Bible. Why don't you just go home and read the Bible in the privacy of your home? Don't talk about becoming a Christian because you put yourself and your family at risk. This is the only Christian I talked to in Iran. One time I decided to go to a church. This is, again, a church for Armenians. It's the biggest church in Iran. I went there for the actual service. And when I wanted to enter the church, the security stopped me and said, you cannot go in. It's such a small group of them. He looks at my face. He knows I'm not one of them. So I said, there is no way that you can um, help me um, go in. He said, you can only come after the service. So I went and walked around the, the church. And eventually, after the service over, I went and he let me in. And I had my English Bible with me. So I sat on one of the seats in the church and opened my Bible. A lady started walking toward me. Um, I asked, uh, she came to me and said, what is this book you are holding? I said, it's an English Bible. She said, I'm very sorry. Only Bibles in the Armenian language are allowed here. Now, at that point, I didn't really understand why she said that. After I left Iran, I heard about a couple of churches that were offering services in Persian, my mother language, and police went to them. And they said, if you don't stop these two services, we close down the whole church. So that was why that lady was, was worried. And that was my only experience of attending church in Iran. So I was never part of a church, a house fellowship, a Bible study. The only Christian I knew discouraged me from becoming a Christian. And I couldn't even attend church. So all these things kind of built up to a point that I said, um, I cannot stay here anymore. So I left um, Iran, went to Malaysia, and um, Malaysia was one of the very few countries that Iranians could go to without requiring a visa. So I was 28 years old, and uh, I left my job, family, friends, and um, I, went, I went to Malaysia. And as I was leaving, leaving Iran, um, I knew one thing. I was never going to be able to go back. So with, with that thing in my mind, I went to Malaysia. So at the age of 28, you make the decision to move to Malaysia, to leave Iran. And what was that initial time in Malaysia like? Can you talk a little bit about 
your experience there and what God did in your life while you were in that country? So I went to Malaysia and what happened with me was, again, uh, my field of study helped me. Um, in, uh, in, in university, we had this course called um, History of English Literature. And the book was designed in a way that in each chapter, um, it was like they explained what happened, let's say, in 14th century, uh, politically, socially, and things like that. And then we will look at some of the works of art that was um, written during that century. So because of that, I knew about Reformation. So when I got to Malaysia, I knew two churches, um, Anglican and Roman Catholic. So I googled Anglican Church in Kuala Lumpur, the capital of Malaysia, and the first result, that's where I went to. So on Sunday morning, I went to uh, this, this church and I saw these um, um, guys wearing uh, white robes. I went to one of them and I said, um, I'd love to talk to your senior pastor. Um, they said, sure, but our service is about to begin. Why don't you come and sit? And then at the end of the service, um, he can come and talk to you. So I went and sat, and um, that was my first uh, church experience in my whole life. And I really cannot tell you how it felt. It was it was just amazing. Um, at the end of the service, this um, senior pastor came and uh, sat close to me and said, how can I help you? Um, I said, I'm... Um, I want to become a Christian. Um, he said, where are you from? And I said, Iran. He looked at me with open eyes, wide open eyes, and said, are you Are you sure it's, <laughs> it's not going to be easy? And I said, well, I, I've left everything. So, yes, I'm, I'm really sure. So he passed my um, contact info uh, to one of his assistants, and uh, he has started um, teaching me about the Bible. So I was, like, going to him um, once a week. And uh, other than the Sunday that I went to um, worship at the church, uh, once a week I was meeting him as he uh, kind of, I would say, discipled me. So you're in Malaysia and you have now had the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. You've, you're being discipled in that faith. What happens next? This, this same pastor, um, he gave me... Um, the book called um, Case for Christ. Um, this is written by a former atheist, and um, he starts to prove his wife wrong that because she had converted. And after research and talking to uh, different people and asking them difficult questions, he became a pastor again. Um, when I read that book, I became interested in apologetics. So what I did was for three years, I read books, um, I watched debates between Christian Muslim, Christian atheists, and all that. And then after three years, my pastor said, um, Farshid, I want you to teach a course on uh, called Engaging with Islam. And I want you and another pastor to co-lead um, this course. So what happened was we had uh, eight two-hour sessions. Um, the pastor would play a video uh, we showed um, an Australian pastor talking about what Muslims believed in. Uh, the second half of the class, which was my role, I would play the devil's advocate. I would play the role of a Muslim, and I would bring up questions or objections that Muslims usually bring against Christians so that the, the participants know whether they are prepared uh, to do that or, or not. That was just like the beginning. Uh, through word of mouth, 
I got invited to more and more uh, churches, church camps, and uh, also um, university uh, Christian fellowships. Um, and I did that for um, eight years. If when I got to Malaysia in the, for the first time, if someone had told me, Fashid, one day you would be preaching the Bible and teaching apologetics in churches, I would have told that person, are you out of your mind? Why should I go around apologizing for being a Christian? I didn't even know what the word apologetics meant. But um, God completely um, changed the, the path of my life. And um, he gave me many, many opportunities to, to serve him and his people. Um, so I would call that the, the encouraging, happy, doing something which I had passion for. Um, but it was also difficult. My father was, when I was in Iran, my father was suffering from uh, depression for so many years. And uh, he had to take a lot of pills every day. Then he had a heart attack. And uh, the doctor told us, um, do not tell him because um, it will um, aggravate his depression. And then he had shingles, which caused him to lose hearing in one of the ears. And it also affected his um, the midsection of his ear. So one time he was at home, he suddenly just fell backward. Thankfully, he managed to get hold of something. But from that point onward, um, I have only one sister. My mom, my sister, and I would take turns walking behind him so that if he falls back, we can we can get hold of him. So this this is how he was before I left Iran. Um, when I left Iran, I got to hear that he was diagnosed with both Parkinson and um, Alzheimer's. Hmm. One of them is horrible enough, and he had he had both of them. And um, the only way I I um, I was able to know how he was doing was that um, almost every day I would have a video chat with my mom, and he would tell me she would tell me, Fashi, this is this is how your father is." Um, eventually, my father had to be play, had to be put in um, ICU, um, and he he was there for four months. So my mother would go and visit him every day. But she would come back home and say, "Fashi, this is how your dad was today." And um, after those four months in ICU, my father passed away. Mm. Um, it's one thing to lose your dad; it's another thing not being able even to attend his funeral. I remember when, when that happened, I was having a video chat with my mom and sister. And the only thing I could tell them was, um, I'm sorry, I cannot be there with you. Mm. Um, four months after that, my grandmother passed away. And about four years ago, my um, uncle passed away. And uh, each of them was like a huge um, sorrow. But at the same time, I have to say, um, I had no regrets. I love my family. I miss my family. In fact, um, my mother and sister came to visit me a few times when I was in Malaysia. But except my mother and my sister, um, I have not seen the rest of my family and relatives for 13 years now. Mm. And um, so I, I don't have any regrets. I tell people, look, I'm not saying I don't love my family. I, I really love them. I miss them. Um, but Christ is far more precious than any of those things. 
So um, yes, I do miss I do miss my family. I'm thankful for technology that somehow I can communicate with um, some of my family members and relatives. But um, I, I don't I don't have any regrets. I the whole uh, experience of being able to attend church and uh, grow as a Christian and uh, doing ministry work. All, all of them are so great blessings um, that that God God has shown me. Um, when I was in Iran, there was a, a street, um, a very famous street in Tehran, um, where there are some um, Armenian shops. And near Christmas, they sell Christmas decorations and trees and all that. Um, I remember I would go to that street on Christmas Eve, and I would just go up and down that street, just looking at those shop windows. And then I would buy um, um, a donut, and I make myself a cup of coffee, and I celebrated Christmas on my own. When I got to Malaysia, um, I think it was either first or second uh, Christmas that I was in Malaysia. For Christmas, I attended four different church services. So people were looking at me and said, Farshid, how come everywhere we go, we see you? Um, I said, do you know how many Christmases I missed back in Iran? So I kind of was like um, making up for it. Oh, thank you for sharing all of that. And I'm... I'm just struck and very humbled uh, by your testimony of of the family loss and and the sorrow that that brings, but also your unswerving faith that Jesus is is more and that he is um, he is worth the sacrifice. And I that's very personally encouraging and convicting for me. So thank you for sharing that. As you uh, are in Malaysia, you're not in Malaysia anymore. So something happened <laughs> that brought you to where you are now. Could you just share that uh, quickly with us, what um, the next steps in your story were following your time in Malaysia? So basically what happened was um, there is this organization called UNHCR. It stands for United Nations High Commission for Refugees. So because I knew I was never going, I was never being able to go back, um, I went and registered there as a refugee. Now in Malaysia, the government hasn't signed the refugee con um, convention. Because of that, refugees in Malaysia are not legally allowed to work. The government and the United Nations, they don't care how you sustain yourself, how you survive, not being able legally to work. The only thing this uh, organization UNHCR would do is to process the case of the refugees. Now, if you are a refugee, there are three options um, available. If you come from a country where there's a war, once the war is over, they send you back, which wasn't my case. Second one is that they help you stay where you are, which because of the job situation, that wasn't applicable. The third option was resettlement. They will send you to a third country. So I was 28, I went to Malaysia, I registered in 2010. It took them two years to give me the refugee ID card. I had to go through three interviews. Um, I went there, they told me come back in three months, then after come back in seven months, and then come back in one year. 
So in two years, I only had three interviews. Um, how, how I could survive or sustain myself during that period, they didn't care. Um, so um, the third interview, which was very interesting, which was the most important one, about two hours, a lady asked me questions about the Bible. They wanted to make sure I am a genuine Christian because sadly, many people pretend to be Christians. And those people make the case for genuine Christians more and more difficult. I was jokingly telling one of my friends, I said, if someone goes to Malaysia now and says that I am a Christian, they will expect him to write a master's level theological article <laughs> so that they know that he's a Christian. So 2012, they gave me the card and they told me, um, we'll see whether you are qualified for resettlement. It took them three years. Um, after three years, they called me and said, Farshid, do you have family in any of these particular countries? I said, no. They said, um, so um, because you don't have that, we will choose America for you because it accepts the greatest number of refugees. They told me, Farshid, you're lucky because the process for U.S. is way faster than other countries. And that, that's a very ironic statement when I, when I finished. Um, so 2015, they told me they have chosen U.S. for me. I had to wait one more year, 2016, for Homeland Security interview. Uh, think about this. Two um, U.S. officers would come to Malaysia for two weeks. They interview a certain number of people, and then they go back. So you should be lucky to get that one of those interviews, which I did. And um, it was a very interesting interview. Um, the lady said, um, I'm going to ask you a list of questions. Could you just answer yes or no? I said, sure. Um, the question was, do you plan to engage in terrorist activities when you get to US? And in my head was like, has anyone said yes to that? <laughs> but anyway, I did a medical checkup. I did Homeland Security interview. And so I thought before Christmas 2016, I'll be in the U.S. Donald Trump became president. He issued a ban on seven countries, which were Muslim countries, including Iran. At first, his order was in my favor. There was one paragraph that says religious minorities are, called, are considered an exception to this rule. So that was in my favor. But a court in U.S. blocked it. And they said, if you have this paragraph in your order, it means you are an Islamophobe. The second order came, they removed that paragraph. It became all inclusive. My case was put on hold for five more years. The medical checkup that I did, it expires after a few months. So in 2021, they again called me and said, um, you need to do medical checkup again. I did that. The process took long, it expired again. Oh, goodness. 2022, I did the medical for the third time. And in August 2022, I was finally resettled in Pittsburgh, US. Hmm. Goodness. How did you pick Pittsburgh? They asked me, um, do you have friends in US? I uh, knew a couple uh, here in US who used to come to my church in Malaysia. They were working in Malaysia. And then, so I knew them and I gave their info to the organization and they said, we won't promise you, uh, but we would uh, try to help you uh, be resettled close to them. 
Uh, Gary and Diane Buchhammer, my friends, they live in Verona. Because they live in Verona, they resettled, resettled me in Pittsburgh so I can be close to them. And let me tell you, it was such a heartwarming uh, thing that happened to me when I landed in Pittsburgh and they had come to the airport to welcome me. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so wonderful. So you have now found yourself with um, this organization called PRISM. Do you want to just talk for just a little bit about what you're doing with them and how how God brought the, you to them and, and how that all transpired? And then we'll we'll try to wrap things up. There is an organization called uh, Jewish Family and Children Services. And this was the organization that was sponsoring me. So a main caseworker came and picked me up from the airport, uh, helped me uh, find, uh, helped me apply for social security number and things like that. After I got all the documents, uh, they said, now we can help you apply for a job. Um, so they asked me to, um, um, for my preferences. Uh, my first preference was I told them I want to do full-time ministry work. If that doesn't happen, I like to work for a Christian organization, even if it's like receptionist. Next one was to work as an interpreter. And I said, if none of those things work, I like to do office work. So they started looking for interpreter and office work. I started looking for <laughs> ministry-related jobs. So this is, this is again, I mean, God is so amazing. It's always, you always appreciate that in hindsight. So um, they, they assigned me this person, uh, his name was Justin. He's part of an, a section of that Jewish family agency called Career Development Center. So he and I would meet online once per week and he would say, Farshid, what have you been up to? What have you found? And he would give me guidelines. So he gave me two guidelines and I'm very thankful um, to him for that. He said, Farshid, when you go for Christmas and you meet friends, just ask around, see if there is any ministry, any ministry related jobs they have in mind that they can suggest to you. The second one was, if you go for an interview and it doesn't work out, ask the very same person about two other options that he may know of. And so that's, that's actually what happened. Um, in my church, there was this, um, um, there was this friend of mine called Ryan. Um, he um, works as an accountant for an organization called CCO. Um, it's Coalition of Christian Outreach. He just told me I'm working for that. And then like most of us immediately said, Fashid, why don't you apply for this? I did. And then um, the person that I talked to said, if you want to work for us, you need to change to change your church to another church that is affiliated with us. I told them, I love my church. I'm not going to do that. So that didn't work. Then um, another uh, family, um, I, have to, I have to mention them, Long John's. They invited me to their house for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year, and Easter. And they were so loving, I actually felt I was part of their family. So their son was there, and he told me he is working for an organization called Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Again, both of us at that point said, let's, let's try this one. I did, and uh, Brian Cook, the, the person in charge, he and I had a meeting, and he said, Fashid, do you feel a sense of calling to minister to athletes? And I told them, honestly, no, I just want to do full-time ministry work. 
Um, he said, I want to stop you from um, uh, applying, but I would say it is not the right fit for you. Then I asked him that question. I said, do you know of one or two organizations I can apply for? Um, and he gave me two. One of them was called Southeast Asian Prayer Center. I met with president of that organization. I had a talk. And then at the end, he says, Farshid, I'm sorry, we don't have any paid positions available. It's just volunteers. The second um, um, person that was named was Pastor Scott Boyd. And that was how I found out about prison. And I can tell you, it is purely God's mercy and grace is because that when I Googled ministry work in Pittsburgh, prison was not one of the results. I couldn't even hear about prison, but I went through that long list of network and I'm, I'm super thankful to have found prison. I love my boss. I love my colleagues and I love my job. Um, I'd like to mention two um, important facts about this. One is that I told my friends, it is a huge blessing to have a legal job after 12 years. It's completely another thing to be able to be, to be paid to do something I love doing. That's one. Second thing was when I sent my job description to my pastor and friends in Malaysia, they responded by saying, Farshid, isn't this the exact same thing you did in Malaysia for eight years? I said, yes, but there's a difference. In Malaysia, I was doing it illegally. Here I am doing it legally. <laughs> and about my job description, what am I involved with? So I am working for PRISM as a campus minister. Um, I have been assigned both Carnegie Mellon and Pitts. My job description would involve reaching out to international students, share the gospel with them, help them um, know about prison events. And uh, for Christian students, I will teach them about apologetics, how to um, answer people's questions and objections about Christian faith, as well as teaching them to evangelize their classmates. Um, Pastor Scott and I will both go to different local churches, uh, we would preach on Sundays or we would conduct training for those local churches. And um, the last item on my um, job description is that I also train um, my colleagues, especially when it comes to evangelizing to Muslims. Hmm. Oh, that's so exciting. It's amazing to think that God has put you there doing a job that you he's been preparing you for um, for a very long time. So really, since uh, since you first read that newspaper article, I would think in Iran all those years ago. That's just really really amazing to hear and very encouraging. Any last things that you'd like to share? Any last tidbits of your story that you feel like oh I forgot to say this? Or is there any one last thing that you would like to leave our listeners? thinking about in terms of how God has worked in your life? What I would say is this. I know that every time I tell my story, God is being glorified. But if I am honest with you, there are many occasions when I feel I don't really want to tell my story. And the reason is this. A lot of people listen to what I have to say about how I became a Christian. And in their thinking, they would say, wow, 
in a country where Bible wasn't accessible, where there was no internet at that time, God reached out to a Muslim by an article surprisingly written in an Iranian newspaper. See, this is how God can save people. We don't need to share the gospel with Muslims. We just pray that God would do the exact same thing to other Muslims. Now, I believe that God can save everyone he wants the same way he saved Apostle Paul. No middleman, direct encounter. God can do the same thing with every other human being. But when we look at history, Paul's conversion is an exception. My conversion is an exception. The way that people become Christ, become Christians is that if through the preaching and teaching and sharing of the gospel, of course, with the Holy Spirit playing a huge and important and crucial role in changing people's hearts. So just because there are some people like me or Apostle Paul who became Christian in that particular, I don't want to even use the word amazing, because I believe every testimony, every single person that comes to faith in Christ, their story is amazing. Yes. Because in each one, God reaches out to a spiritually dead person, regenerates their heart, changes their heart of a stone, and puts a heart of flesh there. So I personally, every time someone comes and tells me, Farshid, you have such an amazing story, I tell them, I am sure yours is the same. So yes, God can say people like me and Apostle Paul in that particular way, but we should never even think that because something like that has happened once, we should just pray the same thing happens to others without seeing that as a responsibility as a believer to share this wonderful news with people around the world who are perishing without it. So whenever I say that, I, I would usually um, tell my friends or people as I talk to this, I said, remember Jesus has given us a great commission. Don't treat it as the greatest omission of your life. Thank you for listening to this episode of On The Move by 21C International. 21C International is a Christian nonprofit organization on a mission to encourage, equip, and empower Christian pastors in the global South by providing free, informal biblical and pastoral training. You can visit 21C International to learn more and be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform to hear more about missions, international ministry, and how God is changing lives around the world.